on behalf of Bonchenik and King and the Firms Diversity Committee, welcome to today's presentation, Marriage Equality from Outlaws to In-Laws. I'm Kim Wolf-Price, the Firms Professional Development and Diversity Officer. I am thrilled to welcome our guest speaker today, Christopher Riano. Chris is the president for the Center for Civic Education, a lecturer in constitutional law and government at Columbia University, a commissioner for New York's Gaming Commission, and has already amassed an impressive array of both government and private sector accomplishments in his career. And I will not list them all because we want to get to hearing him speak today. Chris and I met several years ago working on civic education um, matters, including the Second Circuit's Justice for All initiatives founded by the late judge, Chief Judge Robert Katzman. Now I'm fortunate to be able to partner with Chris through the New York State Bar Association in his role as the first ever chair of the LGBTQ law section. But we've asked Chris here for a reason that's none of those today, but it's his scholarship. In particular, his book, Marriage Equality from Outlaws to In-Laws, which he co-authored with William Eskridge. This book is winning awards that Yale Press has never won and is well-written, compelling journey through the case law from reluctant plaintiffs in middle America to national leaders. As the press on this book says, it is not triumphalist or one-sided, and it's really a legal history that also speaks to how law is made and changed in the United States. Today, Chris will walk us through some of the cases, legal developments, recent decisions, and perhaps a few other issues and updates pertinent along the way. So thank you so much for joining us, Chris, and I'm going to turn today over to you. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much, Kim. And so excited to have a chance to spend a little bit of time talking about, I think, something that's really incredible when it comes to looking at the ways in which the LGBTQ rights movement has made a lot of progress, the places where there's probably still progress to be made, and how it really fits within the canon of the social justice arcs that we're seeing, whether it's the racial justice movements, women's rights, and civil liberties, and everything else that kind of comes together. So I'm looking forward to having a chance to speak today to give a little bit more background on what the uh, civil rights movement for the LGBTQ rights uh, space has looked like and how the last era of 50 years really sets the tone for how we ended up with both marriage equality in 2015, but a lot of the different things that are coming out, including the recent decision in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which I was fortunate enough to participate in. The name of the book as published is Marriage Equality from Outlaws to In-Laws. It came out from Yale University Press in August of 2020. It began as a project, I'd say six years ago, with my co-author, William Eskridge of Yale Law School, when we both sat down and realized that there weren't really any other stories being told that celebrated the intersectionality of the marriage equality movement and celebrated the history of, of the marriage equality movement and looked at marriage equality as much more of an arc from 1967 to 2017. And we, we recognize that there might be a really unique opportunity between the two of us with his incredible scholarship. Uh, the New York Times Review recently called him the dean of the field, which was very incredible. And to look at the scholarship from his perspective of the many, many decades he's been in the space, and then the perspective that I bring in, which is a younger perspective and a little bit of a different view on how marriage equality looks uh, in my own experience. And so that's how we ended up with, with a six-year project, which was supposed to be two. But I think that's what happens with books <laughs> when you get really into it and start interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people around the country. Today, I just want to give some of an overview of some of the bigger picture questions that we looked at and talk about where things might be going in the near future. And I think it's really important to start by noticing some of the larger themes 
that you really see from this arc and the larger themes that we talk about in the book. And we start the book in 1967 when you look at the critical case of Loving versus Virginia, which, as everyone here, I'm sure is aware, you know, focused on ensuring that opposite races could marry in the United States. And in so many ways, that's a piece of a puzzle that really paves so much of a path for how marriage equality came to America. But racial justice is just a piece of that puzzle because it really is an amalgamation of building upon the civil rights movement that comes out of the 50s and 60s and members of the civil rights movement who actually were early pioneers in the LGBTQ rights space and things that were also happening at that time. You know, you have this incredible shift of the role of women in the household. You have this incredible shift in in the way in which all of those kind of pieces were beginning to come together. And and so we start in 1967 because it really does anchor the discussion and the 50-year history in many ways around changes that are happening in the family, changes that are happening in the Constitution, and changes that are starting to really happen, especially when it comes to the law. And in many ways, we start there two years before Stonewall, right? You have this incredible win, Loving versus Virginia, and you have this, the women's rights movement, which starts opening up employment opportunities for women. And you start to see a lot of things happen that are very, very early that you might not expect when looking at the marriage history of marriage equality. You actually begin to start to see the first lawsuits emerge very early on at at this juncture. And you start to see people pushing back against police harassment. Uh, I was fortunate to be the first LGBTQ general counsel of the State Liquor Authority And it's actually the State Liquor Authority that enforced a provision on the books. It's still on the books in New York. It's Alcoholic Beverage Control Law, Section 106, Sub 6. You never forget these things. (laughs) And it's still on the books. It's just interpreted differently. But it's that section of the law that was interpreted that, that allowed for alcohol beverage control agents and police officers to raid LGBTQ bars that eventually results in Stonewall. And I remember one of my first days at the State Liquor Authority, they hand you a sheet that shows everybody who's had your seat as counsel to the authority. And I could pinpoint the person who made that interpretation in the law. It was a kind of an interesting experience, especially as the first LGBTQ person in that seat. But you start to see these cracks forming Even before Stonewall, you start to see these civil rights victories and you start to see the kind of, I'd say, pieces of a puzzle starting to come together of where folks are going to, in the early years, begin to think about where should the LGBTQ rights movement be going? Should it focus on questions of marriage, focus on questions of employment, uh, discrimination, equality, other pieces of the puzzle? And so we start there because there's just so many things that begin to happen in the late 60s, moving into the early 70s. And one of the big things that happens is the Minnesota marriage case. And here you have Jack and Mike. We've spent a lot of time with them, interviewing them for the book and then talking about the book since the book came out. And you really have your first out of Minnesota, the first real marriage celebrities. And and they have this incredible story from a legal perspective where Jack and Mike attempted to get a marriage license. They were denied. And one of them then recognized a little bit of ambiguity in the law, which I'm sure all the lawyers here will appreciate something that has happened to all of us. And so they go to a different county and they apply in a different county, Blue Earth County in Minnesota, and they receive a marriage license. And while they begin to try to litigate, to have that license enforced, and they didn't find a lot of success, I give Jack and Mike an incredible amount of credit 
because as the first real LGBTQ marriage celebrities, they've never, even this many years later, gotten remarried. In fact, about three years ago from today, they went to court in Minnesota and had Minnesota enforce their original marriage license. To say that that's an incredible achievement and a court did order them at the first couple married and that license is now valid and there is no license before it that is valid. To have that type of conviction for so many decades to one significant other, I think speaks volumes about why they really were the, the first marriage celebrities. And I think it speaks volumes about who they are as a couple and their dedication to the space and the dedication to ensuring the LGBTQ rights movement and the marriage equality movement really had a, a strong kickoff right from the get-go. And they're still alive and around, and they're just an incredible couple to be able to tell their story. But I want to start right from the get-go, right where we began, by noting the incredible importance of intersectionality, the incredible importance of people of color, of women and others when it comes to the marriage equality movement. And this is Manonia Evans and Donna Burkett. We, we interviewed them. They file the first federal lawsuit ever saying that the, that the Equal Protection Clause had to allow them to be married. And they filed it in Wisconsin, in the district court in Wisconsin in 1971. And I think this says so much, so, so much. And it's why we spent a lot of time telling part of their story. It says so much about the, the real leadership early on in the LGBTQ marriage equality movement. You have two African-American women who filed the first marriage case in federal court. That says so much. These are the types of stories that haven't been told before that I'm excited to have a chance and to have had the chance to have told in the book. And while the case didn't get traction, you can look at some of the early transcripts and state cases out of Kentucky, actually. There was an early case in Kentucky. You can look some of the state the transcripts in the state case, the federal cases like this. Judges didn't even know how to wrap their mind around the shift from opposite sex, and, but opposite race marriage to same-sex marriage. The early arguments don't look that different than later arguments, but this wasn't something whose time it seemed had come from a constitutional perspective. But I think it shows an enormous amount of courage to be the first couple to file a lawsuit like that and to make some of the arguments that they make that eventually would win the day later. And again, a lot of these early arguments don't make it very far because marriage equality looked like a Trojan horse. And with the changes that were happening in the 70s and those early lawsuits, and then most importantly, the crisis that came with the AIDS crisis, you just don't see the focus on marriage being the focus of the LGBTQ rights space. You see it really being a part and a question of survival in many instances. And once women assumed more prominence, and women assumed more prominence really in the gay rights space, and as straight relationships become more like LGBTQ relationships, and, and when we talk about this, what do I mean? Well, as marriage equality progresses through the 70s and 80s, you do start to see these interesting structures evolve in cities or in other places like domestic registered partnerships with Mayor Dinkins here in New York, or other places in San, like in San Francisco, where do you see the creation of alternative relationship models? And many of those still exist today. In fact, a lot of them are now open to same-sex and opposite-sex couples. You can be domestically partnered in New York State still under state law as a state employee and file an affidavit and not have to be married and receive benefits. There are lots of things that still now exist on the books. And so a lot of the marriage question revived as women did assume more prominence. 
And lesbian women really led the way from Nan Hunter and Paula Edelbrick and Abby Rubenfeld and Roberta Actenberg. You have folks who are beginning to make arguments. And I don't think it's any surprise that as the AIDS crisis particularly decimated gay men, that women begin to step into the void and begin to take leadership. And again, I think it says so much to show that it's women and people of color that begin to take leadership in the LGBTQ rights movement. And you know, these people really lead the way. And a great example from New York is the Brashi case. And I don't know how many folks know the Brashi case, but it's a in the 1980s case in the Court of Appeals where a couple, as happens, moved into a rent-controlled apartment here in New York City two gay men. One of them dies of AIDS. The other one sues to stay in the apartment. And this case and Paula Edelberg helped work on this goes all the way up to the Court of Appeals. And you have this incredible 4-2 decision. And in fact, we talked with the law clerks who were there at the time. And it was not originally 4-2, it was 3-3. And there was a lot of debate and discussion around how to craft the opinion to define the term family in the law. And the term family was not well-defined. And it actually turns out to be a very conservative Catholic judge that is the switch vote where he says uh, in many ways, yeah, you know, we haven't defined family in the law very well and includes somebody who's living in the, the house and is paying the same bills and has the same bank accounts. And this really was a landmark case, especially in the New York story. And I think it shows how New York really can be and has been at the forefront in certain instances and at certain other times not in LGBTQ rights space, but Brashi is an incredible case here specifically to New York and had huge reverberations around the country. And then as that's happening in the 80s and a lot of other pieces are bubbling around with registered partnerships, you have really this breakthrough in Hawaii with Janora and Nina. And in Hawaii, you find the first real state lawsuit that gets to state Supreme Court that shows that at least in the state, you couldn't have discrimination and marriage equality had to be allowed when it came to the state of Hawaii. And while this was an incredible achievement, it was very quickly overturned by a voter initiative and the Hawaii constitution was changed. But it showed that litigation was possible. And one of the things that's incredible about the story, the the history is that while yes, courts play an incredible role, so do executives. Mayor Dinkin is a great example, creating a domestic register partnership, just doing it because he's the mayor. The uh, legislatures play an incredible role. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But to show court victory early on, I thought, I think is very important. And it was important in the LGBTQ history space, because what it allowed for is for others to make similar arguments. And you end up with really what is the Cinderella moment in the marriage equality movement in Massachusetts, where the Supreme Judicial Court ruled four to three, that the natural law model of marriage really did not fit the current constitutional understanding of what marriage means and, and looked at the feminist history of marriage and understanding that different couples and their children fit the basic purposes of what civil marriage looks like. And the reason this was important was because unlike Hawaii, overturning this type of ruling in Massachusetts was a, was a much more daunting task. And we talk significantly about the machinations behind the scenes of how they tried to overturn this ruling and never were successful. And it's incredible to see, I'll say, the politics that went into the Supreme Judicial Court and its work in, in this case. And Mary Bonato, who makes the arguments here, eventually makes the arguments in the final case in 2015. And so I think it's actually an incredible little neat package for the early advocates to also have been the later advocates arguing. And Mary Bonato took the, took the torch when it said, 
that marriage is very important. This is a key thing that we need to be focused on. So in 2004, you have marriage recognized in Massachusetts, and you've got civil unions or partnerships in Vermont and Connecticut and Hawaii. I think this says everything, because this is less than 20 years ago. I want to be very clear about this. This is literally less than 20 years ago to show a social justice movement that has achieved what the LGBTQ community has achieved, especially when you look at relatively small numbers of members of the LGBTQ community versus the whole of the nation. This says that there's something about what this history has has shown that shows what's possible when it comes to making social change. And I think that says a lot. And you can see that in this map that is quite stark and is going to begin to change quite rapidly in the 2000s and 2010s. And in part, that's because there's a change in public opinion. And you can see the change in public opinion that in many ways comes about because people start to come out of the closet. And one of my favorite things, favorite lines from the book is every home is a great place to have closets, but a closet is a horrible place to call your home. And I think in so many ways, you see this in this shift of public opinion when people begin to realize that their neighbor is in a committed relationship and has been for 30 years. And they begin to realize that in Iowa, it's actually not going to be the end of the world if Susan and Sherry decide to get married and they live on the farm next door. This says a lot. This public opinion movement makes a big difference. And it's because you do see folks beginning to come out into the open and become visible when it comes to the community. And here's a, a great example. This is the Iowa couple. And Iowa, very, very early on, had a case that went to the Iowa Supreme Court that focused on Uh, Iowa specifically, the court ruled unanimously that Iowa had to allow marriage. If you actually look at the history of Iowa, Iowa has this very interesting progressive tradition when it comes to women practicing law and some of the first female attorneys. It has this very interesting tradition of actually being quite egalitarian and I'd say libertarian in many ways. And this case was a massive, massive case. In fact, it was the first case that caused members of the Supreme Court of Iowa to be unelected in a retention election since those elections had started many decades before. So judges gave up their seats on the Iowa Supreme Court to make this ruling possible. And I think that says a lot about the role of of judges in this history. And that takes us in many ways from 2009 to 2011. And the New York story is one I'm very, very proud of because I think in so many ways it shows the both the possibilities that are possible in New York and then some of the pitfalls in New York. So I think one of the big takeaways I come away from doing the history of New York is that we have these incredible moments like Stonewall, where New York is really at the forefront of the LGBTQ rights movement. And we have other incredible moments where Alfonso David, former counsel to the governor, takes is a participant in the Hernandez case. That's the legal case in the courts here in New York. And this court of appeals rules that this is not an issue for the courts. There is not a New York constitutional right to marriage. And over the dissent of former Chief Judge Kay, when we interviewed her, she was very clear that it was one of her most disappointing cases, that she was not able to twist arms like she usually was and find a consensus. She essentially writes a dissent that later on will become much of what the majority writes at the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's an incredible case to read from her perspective. And it's an incredible case to see how the judges essentially in some ways said this is not the role of the courts. This is this is really the role of the legislature. And then 
Alfonso becomes counsel to the governor. Well, he was head of civil rights and before he became counsel to the governor and really spearheads the legislative push here in New York. And the, the, er, the first legislative push was a failure. There's this incredible story of watching folks vote on the Senate floor and knowing very early on because it was alphabetical that the vote was going to fail. And then two years later, Andrew Cuomo is elected. And there's a lot of stories about how that came about. And, and Andrew Cuomo made this his signature achievement for his first legislative session. And there was an incredible shift in the advocate space and Alfonso helping work with Daniel Donnell and others in the legislature is able to convince Republicans to sign on famously Republicans from Rochester and Buffalo and from upstate New York. And as they begin to come out of the closet because of their own children, in many instances, saying that this is not an issue anymore. And as Senator Saland definitely called that when we talked to him, you end up with the first massive legislative marriage equality victory, where it is written into statute that family law is different in New York and that marriage equality is statutorily required in the state. And it's an incredible achievement from the legislative perspective. Uh, it's the first major state to have that happen. This happened 10 years, five days ago. And so this is not a small achievement when you think about how Albany functions. I'll put it that way. And many people here know what I mean when I say that. But it's not the first thing that begins to shift because it's not just the states. The story of marriage equality is one in the courts, it's one in the legislatures, and it's one in the executive branch. But it's also one of states, it's also one of cities, and it's also one of the federal government. And as everybody famously knows, now President Joe Biden is in an interview one day, and he famously says when he's not supposed to, that he believes that marriage equality is, is necessary. He gets ahead of the executive, he gets ahead of President Obama, and President Obama has to do a little bit of cleanup. And President Obama essentially comes out of the marriage equality closet in May 2012 and says that this is an important legacy for him, and it's important for him to, to achieve what he can achieve in his time. And he begins to stop defending lawsuits at the federal level. And it makes a massive difference to have the president change the tune, especially at this juncture where you're going to have a lot of states begin to vote on, on ballot initiatives. And it's not just at the legislative level. You have people participating at the ballot box and voting on marriage. So him coming out of the equality closet was a humongous shift, no different than New York's legislative victory. And because you see at the 20, in 2012, marriage equality had lost almost every single ballot. And you begin to see this chip away and the messaging begins to change. It's actually our straight allies that begin to make a huge change in that messaging. And in 2012, you begin to see Maryland, you see Maine, you see Washington, you see victories that really begin to make a difference in Minnesota when it comes to votes. And as soon as you see the electorate having shifted opinion and shifting the way that they're approaching things, I think this made a massive, massive change in the way in which marriage equality became the law of the land in more states across the country, which starts to percolate, as it usually does, in the federal courts on a larger level. And you begin to see that plaintiffs like April and Jane and other parts of the Deborah v. Snyder case begin to percolate up. April and Jane have the most American story of all. They are two NICU nurses in the heart of Detroit, Michigan, and they see kids dying day in and day out. They begin to foster kids that are coming through this inner city emergency room, and then they start adopting kids, and it's a multiracial blended family. 
And they actually uh, were almost in a car accident and they went to a lawyer to try to see if they could cross adopt and they found out that they couldn't. And so they decided to challenge the adoption statute and a federal judge, a very conservative federal judge who later married them said, I'm not going to let you do that, but I'll let you challenge the marriage statute here in Michigan. And they didn't want to be married. They didn't want to get married. They're the unwilling American story of the most incredible American family that just wanted to protect their kids if something happened to one of them. And that's the case that eventually joins with the Obergefell case and begins to percolate up that brings marriage equality to the the United States. And right before the Sixth Circuit's decision uh, from Michigan that goes up to the Sixth Circuit, you can see this massive shift. Remember where we started in 2004. So about a year later, this is what's happened. You have federal courts across the country beginning to decide that marriage equality is required under the U.S. Constitution. Now, this is very famous for a very incredible reason. Many folks here, are, I'm sure, are aware of the, what we call the shadow docket at the Supreme Court. The shadow docket is when the Supreme Court doesn't do something, <laughs> as opposed to when they do do something. And there were actually a number of cases from many circuits, including the fourth, that were percolating up in 2014. And they all were stayed. And overnight, there was a decision. We talk about this in the book where the court decided to not take those cases. And you suddenly have marriage equality in South Carolina and West Virginia. You suddenly have marriage equality in Indiana. You suddenly have marriage equality in the Tenth Circuit. You suddenly have marriage equality all over the country in places where it didn't exist before because of the federal courts. And it was at this moment that many folks said, we knew marriage was on the horizon. We knew this was going to actually happen. We had been actually started, we had been writing the book at this time. And I remember when this this happened because we were all talking about this was the day we knew it was coming down the road. Because at this point, the court's going to look at what other federal judges have decided and say, the world's going to keep spinning when it comes to marriage. And it's important to look at these constitutional changes and family law changes in that lens. Again, this is less than 10 years ago. This is essentially six years ago. And it's incredible to see that progress. And this case is big. In the Sixth Circuit decision, uh, you have this incredible back and forth between now Chief Judge Sutton, I think he's still, I think he's chief right now, and Judge Doherty. And in many ways, it really frames a lot of the arguments that you begin to see going up to the United States Supreme Court. And it, and it ends up being the case that the Supreme Court does decide to take and rule on in 2015. And this is, these are the five justices at that point who, who wrote the Obergefell decision. And I want to talk a little bit about that in a second, in many ways, especially because of Justice Kennedy. And I think something that is not necessarily always apparent, Justice Kennedy historically has been the person who's written the vast majority of the LGBTQ rights cases. And we've, we talked with many of the justices about what happened in conferences and everything. And one of the things that's incredible about Justice Kennedy is his, his libertarian streak, particularly when it comes to LGBTQ rights, because his mentor, the dean of uh, University Pacific School of Law, was openly gay and an openly gay member of the community. And Justice Kennedy was very close and his fam- and his wife was very close with, with the dean. And, and, and his own story about how he framed his libertarian viewpoint on LGBTQ rights, I think, informs the way in which this eventually began to percolate at the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think it's critical to note some of the be- these big themes as these percolate through the book and percolate through the work, because the natural law model ha- really didn't fit where things have changed. And especially when you look at changes in the Constitution, changes in the family, and changes in religion, which is another theme that we talk a lot about. There are massive things that change between the 60s and the 10s. 
And really, it's because of the changing status and rights of women. In so many ways, the changing role that women play in the family and the way in which the role of women has changed so much makes a massive change in family law and begins to open the door to make things like marriage equality possible. We spend a a lot of time talking about how that shift happens over the years and telling the story of people that were part of that shift. And in many ways, the opposition to marriage after Goodrich, after the case in Massachusetts, changed to gender. It changed away from the family itself. And instead, you begin to see these arguments based and tied to questions surrounding gender and gender uh, differentiation. And you can begin to see how this plays a role later on when the two judges, justices in front of you, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Roberts, just last year wrote an opinion in the Basta case ruling that the federal anti-discrimination statutes when it comes to employment and in other places cannot discriminate based on both gender and gender identity. If you look at the way in which that change and shift has come, even post-marriage, I think it's incredible to think that Basically, a year and a half ago, in most states in America, you in all states in America, you had a right to be married to a partner of the same sex. You ha- also had the ability to be fired for that from your job, most states. So just be, you could get married in the morning, put a picture of your spouse on your desk and be fired in the afternoon in the vast majority of America under federal law until this time last year. I cannot express how dynamic this area of law is and how amazing that is to think about, especially as New Yorkers who don't necessarily think about that the same way as as folks have to think about that in other parts of the country. And so marriage equality really teed it up for Justice Gorsuch and Chief Justice Roberts to begin to think through how they approach these questions as well. Um, And I think this is another key, and I'm very proud of the fact that we spent a ton of time talking about the evolution of religion. Religion frequently is posited as a major barrier to ensuring marriage equality in the country. And and yes, religion played a role, but we also tell the story of the Latter-day Saints Church and how they actually, while they funded much of the anti-marriage litigation early on, came to the table with LGBTQ rights activists in Utah and wrote an LGBTQ uh, protective statute. Religion has not always been an enemy. Quite the opposite. Religion has shifted just as much as the family over these last 50 years. And I think that's a story that needs to be told because I think it's important to not just demonize parts of this equation, but instead tell a full telling. Uh, In fact, just a few days ago, the major evangelical magazine, Christianity Today, reviewed the book and said the book really is one of the only fair books they've ever seen on the question. And I take that and the fact that the former general counsel of the Latter-day Saints Church, that blur of the book, I take those types of things to heart because that's something that it was important for both of us was to make sure we told a fair story of both sides of the debate. And so I think it's important to notice that religion has changed just as much as other parts of society have changed over this time. Uh, And you can see this when it comes to early discussions around traditional marriage, quote unquote, and, and the way in which religion played a role. And we tell many of those stories and the way that that looked at the federal level with the Defense of Marriage Act, which was a law that made it so states didn't have to recognize same-sex marriages in other states, especially after Massachusetts. And you can see these shifts constantly happening, and they happen at the state level as well. That's Edie Windsor. Everyone in New York knows Edie Windsor. It's America's grandmother. She had an incredible role to play in the marriage movement. She and her case going to the Supreme Court is the case that made it safe for Obergefell in so many ways. Because once again, everybody recognized that the world wasn't going to end 
And this was the case that began to open the door for federal courts to begin to, to rule across the country in places like Utah and places like North Carolina, et cetera. And I think it's really incredible, again, to keep that focus when it comes to this continued shift from, from this question of hate to a question of toleration. You can see this in many of the big religions. We talked with a lot of religious scholars and talked about the shift in religion. And we talked a lot about that in the book. And it even comes up in cases like this year, where we just had a case about a week ago come out in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, which was surprisingly, to everybody's surprise, a 9-0 decision. I don't think anybody necessarily expected that. A very, very narrow ruling on a contract provision being uh, unconstitutional under the First Amendment. But this is one of the areas where I believe there's going to be continued constitutional debate is questions surrounding free exercise of religion and anti-discrimination statutes. This isn't going to go away, and it's not an easy question to necessarily answer. And I think this is going to be something that continues to be an area of discussion and evolution when it comes to what comes next in the LGBTQ rights space. At the end of the day, these are families. These are people who usually just want civil legal protections like anybody else for the person that they love. And whether that's marriage, which now is possible, whether that is a civil union, which California just expanded their civil union law to include even more people so that opposite sex couples can take advantage of that. It's amazing to look at the menu of relationship options that now exists. And as Kim noted, I'm very, very honored that we've won awards like the Civil Gavel Award, which is the highest award from the American Bar Association for a book. And it's been really incredible to have a chance to tell this six-year journey in a book that can also double as a doorstop, it is a pretty big book because there was a lot to tell, but it's something I'm very proud of. And I think in many ways, I'm a, before I turn over to Kim for questions or comments or anything that folks have, I think in many ways, there's so many different pieces to this 50-year history. And it's been something where, I'll switch that back to this, you don't write a book necessarily or write something like this thinking that you'll get accolades. In fact, I was telling the story earlier about how quite the opposite. <laughs> I remember very specifically the day that I felt the book in my hands for the first time and recognized like this could be bad and nobody might like it. So it's been amazing to see people actually get excited over over the book. And I think it's been a really uh, incredible experience to have a chance to tell this story in so many different ways. And with that, I've gone a little bit over what I wanted to do on my presentation. So I want to make sure to leave time for questions here at the end or comments that I know Kim may have. And I'm just excited that I had a chance to spend the time I've had today with you so far talking about one of the most successful and quickly successful civil rights movements that's ever existed in America. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure to listen to you talk about the book, having met you, I think, as we were starting this journey. So it's it's amazing to see it. And I will hold it up. I have it here, 753 pages with the most really detailed index of subjects and index of names. It's really just incredibly well-researched and done. So thank you for sharing that with us today. I have questions, but I am happy to say the audience does already as well. So uh, the first question is, can you speak about the unique issues of same-sex couples who had adopted one of the partners and now cannot revoke that adoption? That's really interesting. In so many ways, the story of, of marriage equality and the story of the menu of relationship options that now exists is not an is not a simple one. It has not been simple for all of these pieces to come together. What it has done in many ways is open a lot of unique doors in the legal world. 
And so what I mean when I say that is lots of different places ended up with lots of different ways that folks attempted to open the door to marriage or something like marriage to create reciprocal responsibilities in the most intimate relationships that we generally have. Great example. Some folks here might remember when the mayor of New Paltz decided to create fake affidavits and fake marriage licenses and got an injunction issued against him because he was creating fake marriage licenses and fake affidavits (laughs) and nothing to do necessarily with the marriage equality piece. There are so many different structures that have gotten grandfathered in or shifted over time, or people were in civil unions. And then some states said, now that's a marriage. There's actually places like New Jersey where New Jersey has marriage equality, but not because it's a statute. And they've been trying to pass a statute to codify it into statute. This is messy. Family law by definition, and I am not a family law practitioner, but I can say this, family law by definition is so much of a state's issue and really does reside at the state level and with state actors. And because of that, you're not going to have a lot of focus at that uh, when it comes to federal intervention, and you're going to have this laboratory of 50 different ways to look at things. That means there's going to be bumps in the road. That means that, yes, New York still has a registered domestic partnership order here in the city that you can take advantage of. I don't know anybody that does. You can. So there's going to be messy pieces that that happen. And and I think that's part of both the incredible story that's been told over the years. And it's also part of where folks are now trying to kind of understand, all right, you've got marriage equality, but if the religious First Amendment arguments get some traction and there are some questions that surround that, how is that going to look in the bigger scheme of things when it comes to ensuring that marriage equality is, is truly about equal marriages? Not all of those things are answered. And they're not always going to be answered easily in family law. And they're not even going to always be answered easily under the constitutional rubric that we exist under. So I think in so many facets, that's part of what makes this so interesting. And that's part of why 2015 is important, but it's a piece of a longer conversation about how this was a successful civil rights and civil justice movement and how it's a continuing movement, especially when it surrounds some of the most vulnerable members of the LGBTQ rights community. So she does come back with a second part. It it would seem almost like for the audience, prior to the ability to marry each other, same-sex couples, sometimes one would adopt another. Sometimes, yep. To create that legal relationship. And now those couples may want to be married, but can't unwind the legal adoption. Is that a case sort of like maybe the divorce case where we're looking for the right plaintiffs first? I think in many ways, and I would just, I would guess that depending on the state, different state, again, different states are going to have different adoption laws. I, I mean, even here in New York, my heavens, there's an incredible amount of litigation surrounding adoption questions constantly and frequently going to the Court of Appeals. I think in many instances, that is complex. In fact, I, I, can, I worked for the only judge that I'm aware of. I clerked for one of the only judges I'm aware of, if not the only judge, that wrote an anti-marriage equality opinion and then later a pro-marriage equality divorce opinion. And that's we tell a little bit of his story in the book from Maryland. And I think in many ways, that's, conti- that's continuing to be an evolution. And not all states would even let folks do that. That was kind of a shoehorned thing that evolved in a couple different places. And it's not easy. And I think in many ways, that's why either legislation or litigation can become necessary to try to change how those relationships look. And I think it comes back to the core principle that from a legal perspective and a civil perspective, 
the law and society should pr- should protect individuals' ability to make these choices from a legal perspective of their choosing. And and that's not always, uh, you know, as somebody who is actually has a long-term partner and is not married, I think that marriage equality is critical. But at the same time, I think that there are so many individual choices that go into how we want to structure our most intimate relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have another question about the impact um, did the AIDS epidemic have on the marriage equality movement? It, I mean, it had a huge impact because you have a shift of time, manner, resources, and focus away from a lot of the early arguments about marriage equality, instead focusing on even more critical protections about visitations and all sorts of other things. It has it, it presented a massive shift. And in particular, I think because it affected gay men so much early on, you have this massive shift because you see the, uh, the rest of the LGBTQ community in many ways become caretakers as you have one particular part of the community so devastated, decimated by the pandemic and that pandemic and, and not, not our current pandemic. And I think in so many ways that helped formulate these changes as women are becoming far more core and central to the way in which the family unit looks. And so there's no question at all that was a catalyst that made a big shift. And we talk about how that shift looks and you can look at the LGBTQ rights space and see folks focused on that shift and very significant arguments about where the legal community should be focusing its its efforts in the 80s and 90s. And so there's no question that had an impact, but it also had these incredible moments of compassion where you can actually see religion taking a leadership role in compassion for folks who were affected by that pandemic. And a real interesting view of the way that the Catholic Church, especially in San Francisco, really filled some voids when it came to early stages and middle stages of of the AIDS epidemic. And so it's an incredible piece of, of the story. And there's no question that it shifted the way in which the focus looked early on until you see later 1990s, early 2000s. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. So reading this, there's a couple of questions I have. And one, I'm, I'm fascinated, and you talked about this a little bit, family is often the core in many much of this journey. Why do you think that's such a, a powerful piece? And do you think the fact that it was about kids and family, is that what helped the movement? That's really interesting. I think at the end of the day, it, you have a combination of that and a combination of, as we talked a little bit about, the, the fact that folks are coming out of the closet and things are not necessarily as scary. And I can give an example. We have a whole chapter where we talk about messaging and changes in messaging. One of the things that was discovered during the marriage equality movement was that the equality argument didn't change mine. Me saying that I should be have equal rights didn't change the way that people felt. It didn't change the polls. It didn't change the, in the messaging. It failed. That argument doesn't work well from a public relations standpoint. Ah. But if you shift that instead to the golden rule and instead say that you should, I should be treated like you and you should be treated like me, and you start to see people know folks in the LGBTQ community, suddenly it's not this amorphous equality. It's Karen should be treated the same as we are, Karen and Susan or however it is, that begins to move needles. It's shocking how that messaging change made a massive difference. And we talk about that that discovery and that shift in the book. And in fact, I think it's one of the most important takeaways for other social justice movements is that messaging is critical. It makes a very, very big difference 
in the success of a movement and traditional legal messaging arguments and traditional ways of looking at things sometimes is not the best way to argue. And you can look in Obergefell and you can see that if it was a strict equal protection argument that while Justice Kennedy gave Ruth Bader Ginsburg her paragraph about that, Justice Kennedy was far more focused on fundamental equitable principles found under the Liberty Clause of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, and then earlier in Windsor in the Fifth Amendment. So that is really amazing to see. And I think it's very instructive when it comes to other social justice movements that are continuing in the United States. It gets us away from that piece of pie. Like, it's not a pie that, like, then there'll be less if we get away from the equality argument and move it's place. amazing. It's and it's and it's not what you would ever expect. I mean, you would never expect that to be in the forefront of those arguments. But it says so much to see how this success, at least in part, was because of a shift in that argument. Yeah, amazing. So we do have another question. What intersections do you see? with regard to the evolution of marriage equality with issues that black and brown people experience within our own legal system and society, especially as it relates to children of color. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, even shift, I'll even shift right back to what we were just talking about and note that it's one, of, and again, it's one of the things I'm proudest of when Bill and I went into this, we went into this very specifically with my desire to ensure the telling of the intersectionality of the movement. It's why we open talking about Black and brown couples that were right at the forefront early on. And we close vis-a-vis looking at Polly Murray, who was a transgender legal activist, Episcopal priest, and just like incredible woman vis-a-vis Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who helped us actually write uh, and edit part of the chapter, uh, which was an experience that for another day, <laughs> justice helped with her story. We thank her in the book. And I think what that shows is the importance of people of color and minority, other social and gender minorities in the movement. And it also shows right back what I was just talking about, about how messaging can become really important. And you know, we're talking a lot right now about transgender equality and racial equality and so many other pieces of social justice. And I think that there's been incredible achievements on a number of fronts, and yet there's incredible amounts of work to do. And we have not achieved the kind of justice that we might necessarily want to see. And as lawyers, we play a very important role in the rule of law and ensuring the rule of law and protecting the rule of law, and especially protecting that for those who can't necessarily protect it for themselves, right? We all swore an oath to uphold the constitution and to uphold our office. And I think that the vast majority of us take that incredibly seriously as we should, because we are the guardians of these things. And in in so many ways, that is right at the center of that question, because I think in so many facets, all of these social justice movements are evolving and they're all going to hit sometimes similar bumps. Uh, You can see some of that at the moment when it comes to questions about equality and equity and, and issues that are bubbling up in the racial justice movement around that and those concepts. And you can see how the LGBTQ rights movement, at least in part, dealt with and discussed some of that and recognized how that messaging really mattered and made a big difference when people were voting on marriage. And so I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And I think the incredibly important, incredibly important piece to all of this. Social justice movements tend to be successful when they bring people together and they don't drive people apart. 
you can look at the marriage equality movement and it's times where the marriage equality movement was fragmented that things didn't happen. It's times when people put differences aside and found commonalities that things did happen. The New York story is a great example. The biggest shift in 2011 wasn't the legislature. The biggest shift was you had a governor come in and tell all of the marriage, pro-marriage equality groups, stop quibbling with each other to get credit. I'm going to figure this out. You can all work with me or it's not happening. And it happened because of that. And so in so many ways, there's an incredible story of unity and, and togetherness and, and similarity that I think the marriage equality movement tells. And it's why it was so important to me, at least, to tell that intersectional story in, in so many different pieces and parts of the book. And it seems like the description of this is my family, I'm, I'm just treat my family like you treat your own, is, is maybe part of what gained traction and it was incre- yeah, and it, it, it was so incredible to see that shift when we were, t- we were doing research for the book that we have a whole chapter called The Golden Rule because it, 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 you can see what an incredibly central role that shift in messaging played. I think as we talk about the idea of the golden rule, it's a good place maybe to, to stop for today and to remind us that that is something that we have to take forward with us. <laughs> From today, but I really, Chris, I can't thank you enough for taking us through 753 pages and 50 years of history in about 55, 56 oh, minutes. It's yeah, pretty amazing. It's, <laughs> and and I just thank everybody for joining us today, in particular because I think that this is the story of America, and I think that there's so much to to tell, so much to learn, and there's still so much to do. Thank you all. Thanks, Chris. I hope to see you in person soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Legally Bond. If you are listening and have any questions for me, want to hear from someone from the firm, or have a suggestion for a future topic, please email us at legallybond at bsk.com. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Legally Bond wherever podcasts are downloaded. Bond, Shenick, and King has prepared this communication to present only general information. This is not intended as legal advice, nor should you consider it as such. You should not act or decline to act based upon the contents. While we try to make sure that the information is complete and accurate, laws can change quickly. You should always formally engage a lawyer of your choosing before taking actions which have legal consequences. For information about our communication, firm, practice areas, and attorneys, visit our website, bsk.com. This is attorney advertising.